Section 62 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 3. The Nastos. Episode 18. Penelope. Part 7. Who knows, is there anything the matter with my insides, or have I something growing in me? Getting that thing like that every week, when was it last I— Whit Monday, yes, it's only about three weeks. I ought to go to the doctor, only it would be like before I married him, when I had that white thing coming from me, and Flowey made me go to that dry old stick Dr. Collins for women's diseases on Pembroke Road. Your vagina, he called it. I suppose that's how he got all the gilt mirrors and carpets, getting round those rich ones off Stephen's Green running up to him for every little fiddle-faddle. Her vagina and her cochinchina, they've money, of course, so they're all right. I wouldn't marry him, not if he was the last man in the world. Besides, there's something queer about their children always smelling around, those filthy bitches all sides. Asking me if what I did had an offensive odor. What did he want me to do but the one thing? Gold, maybe? What a question! If I smathered it all over his wrinkly old face for him with all my compliments, I suppose he'd know then. And could you pass it easily? Pass what? I thought he was talking about the Rock of Gibraltar the way he put it. That's a very nice invention, too, by the way. Only I like letting myself down after in the hole as far as I can squeeze and pull the chain then, to flush it nice cool pins and needles. Still there's something in it, I suppose. I always used to know by Millie's when she was a child whether she had worms or not. Still all the same paying him for that. How much is that, doctor? One guinea, please, and asking me had I frequent omissions. Where do those old fellows get all the words they have, omissions, with his short-sighted eyes on me cocked sideways? I wouldn't trust him too far to give me chloroform or God knows what else. Still I liked him when he sat down to write the thing out, frowning so severe, his nose intelligent like that. You be damned, you lying strap. Oh, anything, no matter who except an idiot. He was clever enough to spot that. Of course that was all thinking of him and his mad, crazy letters. My precious one, everything connected with your glorious body, everything underlined. That comes from it is a thing of beauty and of joy forever. Something he got out of some nonsensical book that he had me always at myself four and five times a day sometimes, and I said I hadn't. Are you sure? Oh, yes, I said, I am quite sure, in a way that shut him up. I knew what was coming next. Only natural weakness it was. He excited me, I don't know how. The first night ever we met when I was living in Rehoboth Terrace, we stood staring at one another for about ten minutes as if we met somewhere, I suppose on account of my being Jewess looking after my mother. He used to amuse me the things he said with the half-slithering smile on him, and all the Doyle said he was going to stand for a member of Parliament. Oh, wasn't I the born fool to believe all his blather about Home Rule and the Land League, sending me that long strool of a song out of the Huguenots to sing in French to be more classy, au beau pays de la Touraine that I never even sang once, explaining and rigmaroling about religion and persecution. He won't let you enjoy anything naturally. Then might he, as a great favor, the very first opportunity he got a chance in Brighton Square, running into my bedroom pretending the ink got on his hands, to wash it off with the Albion milk and sulphur soap I used to use and the gelatin still round it. Oh, I laughed myself sick at him that day. I better not make an all-night sitting on this affair. They ought to make chambers a natural size so that a woman could sit on it properly. He kneels down to do it. I suppose there isn't in all creation another man with the habits he has. Look at the way he's sleeping at the foot of the bed. How can he without a hard bolster? It's well he doesn't kick or he might knock out all my teeth breathing with his hand on his nose. 
like that Indian god he took me to show one wet Sunday in the museum in Kildare Street, all yellow in a pinafore, lying on his side on his hand with his ten toes sticking out, that he said was a bigger religion than the Jews and our lords both put together all over Asia, imitating him as he's always imitating everybody. I suppose he used to sleep at the foot of the bed, too, with his big square feet up in his wife's mouth. Damn this stinking thing, anyway, where's this those napkins are? Ah, yes, I know. I hope the old press doesn't creak. Ah, I knew it would. He's sleeping hard. Still, she must have given him great value for his money. Of course, he has to pay for it from her. Oh, this nuisance of a thing! I hope they'll have something better for us in the other world. Tying ourselves up, God help us. That's all right for tonight. Now the lumpy old jingly bed always reminds me of old Cohen. I suppose he scratched himself in it often enough, and he thinks father bought it from Lord Napier that I used to admire when I was a little girl because I told him easy piano. Oh, I like my bed. God, here we are as bad as ever after sixteen years. How many houses were we in at all? Raymond Terrace and Ontario Terrace and Lombard Street and Hall Street. And he goes about whistling every time we're on the run again his Huguenots or the Frogs March, pretending to help the men with our four sticks of furniture, and then the City Arms Hotel, worse and worse, says Warden Daly, that charming place on the landing, always somebody inside praying, then leaving all their stinks after them, always know who was in there last. Every time we're just getting on right, something happens or he puts his big foot in it. Tom's and Hellis and Mr. Cuff's and Drimmy's. Either he's going to be run into prison over his old lottery tickets that was to be all our salvations, or he goes and gives impudence. We'll have him coming home with the sack soon out of the freemen, too, like the rest, on account of those sinner fane or the Freemasons. Then we'll see if the little man he showed me dribbling along in the wet all by himself round by Cody's Lane will give him much consolation. That he says is so capable and sincerely Irish. He is indeed, judging by the sincerity of the trousers I saw on him. Wait, there's George's church bells. Wait, three-quarters the hour, one, wait, two o'clock. Well, that's a nice hour of the night for him to be coming home at. To anybody climbing down into the area, if anybody saw him, I'll knock him off that little habit tomorrow. First I'll look at his shirt to see, or I'll see if he has that French letter still in his pocketbook. I suppose he thinks I don't know deceitful men. All their twenty pockets aren't enough for their lies. Then why should we tell them, even if it's the truth they don't believe you? then tucked up in bed like those babies in the aristocrat's masterpiece he brought me another time. As if we hadn't enough of that in real life without some old aristocrat or whatever his name is, disgusting you more with those rotten pictures, children with two heads and no legs. That's the kind of villainy they're always dreaming about with not another thing in their empty heads. They ought to get slow poison, the half of them. Then tea and toast for him buttered on both sides and new laid eggs. I suppose I'm nothing any more when I wouldn't let him lick me in Hall Street one night. Man, man, tyrant as ever. For the one thing, he slept on the floor half the night, naked the way the Jews used when somebody dies belonged to them, and wouldn't eat any breakfast or speak a word wanting to be petted, so I thought I stood out enough for one time and let him. He does it all wrong, too, thinking only of his own pleasure. His tongue is too flat or I don't know what. He forgets that we, then, I don't, I'll make him do it again if he doesn't mind himself, and lock him down to sleep in the coal cellar with the black beetles. I wonder was it her Josie off her head with my cast-offs. He's such a born liar, too. Though he'd never have the courage with a married woman, that's why he wants me. And Boylan, though, is for her Dennis, as she calls him, that forlorn-looking spectacle. You couldn't call him a husband. Yes, it's some little bitch he's got in with. Even when I was with him with Millie at the college races, that hornblower with the child's bonnet on the top of his knob led us into by the back way. He was throwing his sheep's eyes at those two doing skirt duty up and down. 
I tried to wink at him first. No use, of course, and that's the way his money goes. This is the fruits of Mr. Paddy Dignam. Yes, they were all in great style at the grand funeral in the paper Boylan brought in. If they saw a real officer's funeral, that'd be something. Reversed arms, muffled drums, the poor horse walking behind in black. Elboom and Tom Kernan, that drunken little barely man, that bit his tongue off, falling down the men's W.C. drunk in some place or other. And Martin Cunningham and the two Dedaluses and Fanny McCoy's husband. White head of cabbage, skinny thing with a turn in her eye, trying to sing my songs. She'd want to be born all over again, and her old green dress with the low neck as she can't attract them in any other way. Like dabbling on a rainy day. I see it all now plainly, and they call that friendship. Killing and then burying one another, and they all with their wives and families at home. More especially Jack Power keeping that barmaid. He does, of course. His wife is always sick, or going to be sick, or just getting better of it, and he's a good-looking man still, though he's getting a bit gray over the ears. They're a nice lot, all of them. Well, they're not going to get my husband again into their clutches if I can help it, making fun of him then behind his back. I know well when he goes on with his idiotics, because he has sense enough not to squander every penny piece he earns down their gullets and looks after his wife and family. Good for nothings. Poor Paddy Dignam all the same. I'm sorry in a way for him. What are his wife and five children going to do unless he was insured? Comical little teetotum always stuck up in some pub corner and her or her son waiting. Bill Bailey, won't you please come home? Her widow's weeds won't approve her appearance. They're awfully becoming, though, if you're good-looking. What men wasn't he? Yes, he was at the Glencree dinner and Ben Dollard bass barrel tone the night he borrowed the swallowtail to sing out of in Hall Street, squeezed and squashed into them and grinning all over his big dolly face like a well-whipped child's body. Didn't he look a balmy bollock, sure enough? That must have been a spectacle on the stage. Imagine paying five in the preserved seats for that to see him trotting off in his trowlers. And Simon Dedalus, too, he was always turning up half-screwed singing the second verse first. The old love is the new was one of his. So sweetly sang the maiden on the hawthorn bough. He was always on for flirtifying, too, when I sang Maritana with him at Freddie Mayer's private opera. He had a delicious, glorious voice. Phoebe, dearest, good-bye, sweetheart. Sweetheart, he always sang it, not like Bartle Darcy, sweet tart. Goodbye. Of course he had the gift of the voice, so there was no art in it. All over you like a warm shower-bath. Oh, Maritana, wildwood flower. We sang splendidly, though it was a bit too high for my register, even transposed. And he was married at the time to May Goulding, but then he'd say or do something to knock the good out of it. He's a widower now. I wonder what sort is his son. He says he's an author and going to be a university professor of Italian, and I'm to take lessons. What is he driving at now, showing him my photo? It's not good of me. I ought to have got it taken in drapery. That never looks out of fashion. Still, I look young in it. I wonder he didn't make him a present of it altogether. And me too, after all. Why not? I saw him driving down to the Kingsbridge station with his father and mother. I was in mourning. That's eleven years ago now. Yes, he'd be eleven. Though what was the good in going into mourning for what was neither one thing nor the other? The first cry was enough for me. I heard the death watch, too, ticking in the wall. Of course he insisted. He'd go into mourning for the cat. I suppose he's a man now by this time. He was an innocent boy then, and a darling little fellow in his Lord Fauntleroy suit and curly hair like a prince on the stage. When I saw him at Matt Dillon's he liked me too. I remember they all do wait, by God. Yes, wait. Yes, hold on, he was on the cards this morning when I laid out the deck. Union with a young stranger neither dark nor fair you met before. I thought it meant him, but he's no chicken nor a stranger either. Besides, my face was turned the other way. What was the seventh card after that? The ten of spades for a journey by land. Then there was a letter on its way and scandals, too. 
the three queens and the eight of diamonds for a rise in society, yes, wait, it all came out, and two red eights for new garments. Look at that, and didn't I dream something, too? Yes, there was something about poetry in it. I hope he hasn't long greasy hair hanging into his eyes or standing up like a red Indian. What do they go about like that for, only getting themselves and their poetry laughed at? I always liked poetry when I was a girl. First I thought he was a poet like Lord Byron, and not an ounce of it in his composition. I thought he was quite different. I wonder, is he too young? He's about—wait. Eighty-eight. I was married eighty-eight. Millie is fifteen yesterday, eighty-nine. What age was he then at Dillon's? Five or six, about eighty-eight. I suppose he's twenty or more. I'm not too old for him if he's twenty-three or twenty-four. I hope he's not that stuck-up university student sort. No, otherwise he wouldn't go down sitting in the old kitchen with him, taking Epps cocoa and talking. Of course he pretended to understand it all. Probably he told him he was out of Trinity College. He's very young to be a professor. I hope he's not a professor like Goodwin was. He was a potent professor of John Jameson. They all write about some woman in their poetry. Well, I suppose he won't find many like me, where softly sighs of love the light guitar where poetry is in the air. The blue sea and the moon shining so beautifully coming back on the night boat from Tarifa, the lighthouse at Europa Point. The guitar that fellow played was so expressive. Will I ever go back there again? All new faces, two glancing eyes, a lattice hid. I'll sing that for him. They're my eyes if he's anything of a poet. Two eyes as darkly bright as love's own star. Aren't those beautiful words as love's young star? It'll be a change, the Lord knows, to have an intelligent person to talk to about yourself. Not always listening to him, and Billy Prescott's ad, and Key's ad, and Tom the Devil's ad, then if anything goes wrong in their business we have to suffer. I'm sure he's very distinguished. I'd like to meet a man like that. God, not those other ruck. Besides, he's young. Those fine young men I could see down in Margaret Strand bathing place from the side of the rock, standing up in the sun naked like a god or something, and then plunging into the sea with them. Why aren't all men like that? There'd be some consolation for a woman. Like that lovely little statue he bought. I could look at him all day. Long curly head and his shoulders, his finger up for you to listen. There's real beauty and poetry for you. I often felt I wanted to kiss him all over. Also his lovely young cock there, so simple. I wouldn't mind taking him in my mouth if nobody was looking, as if it was asking you to suck it. So clean and white he looks with his boyish face. I would, too, in half a minute, even if some of it went down. What, it's only like gruel or the dew, there's no danger. Besides, he'd be so clean compared with those pigs of men, I suppose never dream of washing it from one year's end to the other, the most of them. Only that's what gives the women the mustaches. I'm sure it'll be grand if I can only get in with a handsome young poet at my age. I'll throw them the first thing in the morning till I see if the wish-card comes out, or I'll try pairing the lady herself and see if he comes out. I'll read and study all I can find, or learn a bit off by heart if I knew who he likes so he won't think me stupid. If he thinks all women are the same and I can teach him the other part, I'll make him feel all over him till he half faints under me. Then he'll write about me, lover and mistress, publicly too, with our two photographs in all the papers when he becomes famous. Oh, but then what am I going to do about him, though? End of section 62